Race matters. 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 that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song and we're privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio and we're here to continue to listen and learn and know we have a lot to learn and to be accountable to as a show operating outside of FBI Radio, contributing to the gentrification of Redfern and the long legacy of black organising and community building in the area. I want to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work we do and carry this into our conversation today. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, culture and identity. I'm Sharika Halaludin. Good morning, wherever you are joining us from. Um, It's pretty rare that we kind of note the time that we're in as we like to think that these types of conversations are timeless and exist beyond the present. But today I'm going to do exactly that and point to this moment in time. Today it's October 15th. Maybe some of you are recognising it as the day after our referendum or maybe better yet, it's just another day in the colony. This has been an enraging time of racism, asymmetrical emotional labour, disinformation and a parade for unjust rhetoric that has had adverse impacts on First Nations communities. We wanted to acknowledge the harm, grief and disenfranchisement and the heartbreak this has caused and above all, as a show, we really wish for strength and salve and connection to our First Nations contributors, siblings and extended communities. Our show today kind of traces decolonisation and it's something that we see as necessarily plural, messy, non-linear and contradicting. It's about interrelatedness, imagination and tangible work that dreams beyond colonial documentation like a constitution and narrow conversations. So we hold this with hope, with rage, with grief, with love, with possibility 
with receptiveness and with vigilance. There's been a bit of a cognitive dissonance um, watching mainstream media this week with a referendum to see if Aboriginal people should have a voice in Parliament whilst at the same time wanting to project an Israeli flag on the Opera House. Um, We're saying shame to this government for calling on a majority settler population to vote for First Nations communities on their land and in the same breath showing support for Israel and its violent genocidal acts towards Palestinian peoples. I know that's a lot for a Sunday morning, but imagine what it is to kind of live and breathe that every day and I'll show This morning is dedicated to exactly that and we hope you'll stick around to journey with us to hear an amazing constellation of people who'll be able to articulate that way better than I can. So on today's show, we seek to continue to uplift the ongoing resistance and interconnectedness of displaced peoples on these lands in so-called Australia, in Palestine and in all occupied territories. So we'll be joined live by Darumbul and South Sea Islander journalist Amy McGuire, um, Palestinian organiser Amal, and the two of them are going to be speaking from their unique perspectives on what solidarity with Palestine looks like and contextualising it in this week, especially during the referendum and the siege that is ongoing. And we're also going to hear from Ramia Sultan, a Palestinian organiser, sharing what's happening on the ground in Gaza. <laughs> Our show comes together with a chorus of people helping us lay out the legacy of and continued resistance of First Nations and Palestinian peoples. That brings us to our first guest for today, Amy McGuire. She's a Darumbul and South Sea Islander woman. Her work as a writer and organiser has been galvanising from the silencing of black women's stories to truth-telling in this violent colony. She's also someone who embodies her politics, turning this truth-telling and cross-cultural solidarity into tangible action. We're really honoured to have her on the show today. Amy, good morning. Thank you so much for joining Race Matters. Thank you much, Sharika, and thank you for giving space to these sort of conversations, especially in this present time. Um, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge I'm speaking on the land of um, Yagara people up in Mianjin. And also just um, feeling very angry and upset this morning about everything that has happened, not just here, but over in Gaza, obviously, Um, and just express my solidarity and continuing solidarity with Palestinian brothers and sisters everywhere, really. Um, I can't even imagine what that feeling must be like. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for saying so and bringing that to the fore, because that's exactly why we wanted to invite you on. And you're someone who has been working at that intersection of First Nations and Palestinian justice for a long time now. Um, But if we were to ground ourselves in this moment, this moment that you speak of with all those um, rightfully heightened emotions, um, why is it important to distill the connection between these shared struggles? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, we're both settler colonial societies. I think when I first started learning about Palestine, it was really through the resistance. It wasn't even through those images of violence. It was understanding the words from Palestinian um, people, particularly over here in standing on stolen Aboriginal lands. And I realised that there were so many similarities between our fights as peoples. And so it was so important to stand up against that. And for me, um, being a journalist and being in the media, but mostly working in independent media, I saw particularly the similarities between the intense silencing of Indigenous voices in Palestine over here. I mean, it was particularly horrific when you consider Palestine. That's what we're seeing right now is that you cannot conduct these this level of war crimes, conduct a genocide and ethnic cleansing, but even the past decades in, in Gaza and Palestine without the complicity of the media. And so the media has blood on its hands in relation to Palestine. And I think that's where it really began for me listening to, it wasn't even Palestinian voices, it was also Jewish voices, anti-Zionist voices who were speaking out in support of Palestine. 
um, but also seeing just the levels of media silencing, which is really violence. The media are reproducing violence by allowing for the conditions for Israel to conduct ethnic cleansing and genocide on Gaza. Um, you know what I mean? So it really, really emerged from that, but also the solidarities we feel fr from our Palestinian brothers, sisters in Australia towards us as well, because they are at our protests as well. So it's that continuing growing solidarity like solidarity is not just you're just you know you, there's work that is done around it but it was really through acknowledging that we're both settler colonial societies and this is a racist struggle you know this is a struggle against racism um and and, and colonialism and imperialism and everything um yeah so it really emerged from that yeah i want to pick up on this piece of silencing which is a big part of your work as a writer and in your academic work as well and it navigates the silencing of first nations women's stories and as you said the complicity of the media in doing so how do silencing tactics relate to what we've been experiencing you know across the referendum and to the coverage of palestine right now well i always like to sort of quote noam chomsky on this he talks about you know there is, you may believe that you have this um, ability to speak, but it's really in these really limited confines, these really limited parameters. So he talks about, you know, you can have these conversations, but only in here. And when you talk, um, when you step outside of those confines, that's when the problems happen. Um, but in Palestine, that, that parameter has been very, very, very narrow. And we're seeing that now with um, the way Palestinians are forced to condemn Hamas, rather than speak to the humanity and what is happening, not just now in Gaza, but over this, the course of the occupation. You know, this isn't just um, a genocide happening now. It has been going on through different forms and different means. Um, and so that silencing, um, it is not just about what is, um, what is being said, but what is left unsaid and how we uncover what is actually being silenced. Um, and that is the real issue. I think what has happened is um, it has changed a little bit in the fact that we have that voices through social media and through independent media and everything like that. But um, I think silencing is one of the tools of the colonial project. Um, and even the ways that we are able to speak about certain things are always confined by what the colonizer wants us to talk about. And that's what we're seeing in the mainstream media. You can speak, but only first if you condemn Hamas, only if you first say this, otherwise you're at risk of being called anti-Semitic. Um, and so, so much space is given to just having to defend your right to speak and your right to speak your truth rather than actually speak that truth. And in the meantime, Palestinian um, men, women and children are being slaughtered and starved um, and having their human rights just totally fundamentally violated in, in ways that are totally shocking. And that's what has happened to us as well, from the frontier to the present. We can speak, but only in certain ways. And this referendum has been very silencing. You know, you could only speak. Yama, I'm Alison Whitaker. I'm a Gomorrah woman. I'm recording this for the Sunday paper on Gadigal and Mongol country over which sovereignty was never ceded, and on which I'm honoured to be a guest. I acknowledge Gadigal and Mongol elders and ancestors who continue to hold sovereignty over this place. It's my honour to bring you Amy Maguire's words today. Amy Maguire. Our shared resistance. I always say that I grew up in my traditional homelands, Durumbal country and central Queensland, but that is not entirely true. I have only ever seen the silhouettes of the mountains from the highway. I am of the Kuin Mabara clan of the Durumbal nation, and the land of my ancestors is Shoalwater Bay, which for a long time has been the site of the largest war games in this part of the world. Every two years, the US and Australia, as well as other countries like Canada and Japan, take part in large-scale wargaming. Helicopters fill the sky. Army trucks take over the highway. And American soldiers in plain clothes march the streets on their days off. It is called Talisman Sabre. 
these war games are largely seen as an oddity or a positive intervention to the media who report on it, as well as the public in Rockhampton. In 2019, the ABC opened their story on the war games. Australian, US and Japanese military forces have successfully landed the largest beach Australian-led invasion since World War II. Occasionally, anti-war protesters come in, but for the most part, the games are held without controversy, and then the dust settles for the next two years. In 2017, there was a major uproar when the Australian Department of Defence tried to compulsorily acquire land in Shoalwater Bay for the training of Singaporean military troops. Some of these farming and pastoral families had bid on their land for 158 years, the same time as the original invasions that decimated the Durumbal nation, my own ancestors, had moved them off-country. The Department of Defence were forced to backflip, and those families kept their land their own ancestors had originally stolen or negotiated compensation. In the media coverage, there was so little reflection on the irony of the farmers' fears, of the fact that this land was not their own, that their access to this country had been due to the attempted genocide of my people. Today, Durumbal people do have access to some of this country. My own relatives do go there to fish and hunt, but this right is always conditional. I myself have never been to Shoalwater Bay. It is less than 30 minutes' drive from the town I grew up in. These original invasions into Durumbal homelands and into the homelands of Aboriginal nations all across the country was our own Nakba, just like our Palestinian siblings, and we have been denied the right to live and care for our country and our lands. Land justice is at the heart of our every protest because country is intimately entwined with our well-being and our future. Not only do we need country, but country needs us. We have been the caretakers of country for tens of thousands of years. The invasions ended, but settler colonialism continued, and the very purpose of it, to eliminate the native, is still at the very core of the project. There are continual attempts to erase Indigenous presence from our own lands. We see this in the justice system, where Aboriginal people are warehoused and hidden away, cordoned off from country into contained spaces where they become less than human. We see this in the child protection system, where Aboriginal children are ripped from their families and communities and then end up in detention centres. We see this in the education system, where for too long we were told lies about the foundations of the lucky country. We see this in the health system, where Aboriginal people are told that we're the problems and that ill health is a result of lifestyle or choices and not the brutal violence that convinced a public of the inevitability of our early deaths. We see it in the industries that we are told will provide us employment, the mining industry, for which blackfellas are ripped from our traditional lands in exchange for pennies, where these lands are poisoned for generations, where our sacred sites are destroyed with barely any a penalty or peep. All of this violence is about separating us from country and preventing our return by making this country sick. You are making us sick. In 1948, Palestinian refugees were denied their right to return to their country after the Nakba, during which they were forcibly displaced and massacred to make way for an Israeli state. Since then, they have continually been denied this right as Israel takes more and more land away by brutal force, displacing more people, eliminating Palestinian presence from Palestinian lands. They cordon Palestinians off into jails and detention centres and have placed a stranglehold on Gaza, so that it is now said to be the largest open-air prison in the world. They continue to steal land, 
through encroaching settlements into occupied Palestine. They displaced Palestinians inside Israel, as we most recently saw, in forced evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and other suburbs. Unlike Australia, which hides its violence for the most part, the sheer brutality of Israeli force is on full display for the world to see. And yet Palestinians are told that this is a two-sides debate in which they are equally responsible. The media says it isn't apartheid. It isn't a genocide. It isn't theft. That it is complex. For Aboriginal people looking at Palestine, this is not complex. It is the story we know all too well. I first realised the links between the two situations, not by seeing the violence, but by hearing the advocacy and voices of Palestinian people here, on occupied Aboriginal lands. I realised our similarities, through the words of Palestinian writers Randa Abdel Fattah, Samar Sabawi, Sarah Saleh, Janine Kalik, Jamal Nabulsi, and so many more. It wasn't in seeing the violence that I saw our connections, but in our shared resistances. Resistance that is predicated on our right to return, to live, and to breathe freely on our traditional lands. We aren't similar only because we are both Indigenous populations living in settler colonial societies, but because we view country in the same way. We both see country as intrinsically connected to our being. Sovereignty is at the heart of both of our protests, and it is why even when there seems to be no hope, we are still able to resist. Regardless of media blackouts, regardless of the representational violence so readily deployed, we know that sovereignty has never been ceded, not over our lands not over our bodies, not over our lives. just tuned in you're listening to race matters on fbi radio my name is sharika hellaluden we just heard a reading from a piece in the sunday paper written by amy mcquire and read by gomeroy poet and legal researcher alison whittaker before that I was joined by Amy McGuire herself, speaking to the shared legacy and resistance of Black and Palestinian liberation movements. We move now from Gadigal to Gaza to what's unfolding on the ground in Palestine. Two days ago, I was joined by Palestinian lawyer and advocate Ramia Sultan. She joined us in her capacity with Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, but also as someone who has family in Gaza. A content note that her story contains some graphic acts of genocide and devastation. Um, We seek to uplift these narratives as mainstream media continues to erase them. But if this affects you, feel free to tune out for the next eight minutes. Today marks the seventh day of the aggression on Gaza in the context of the years of dispossession of Palestinian peoples. Ramia, you're joining us not only in your capacity for the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, um, but you're also someone whose family is directly impacted in this moment. When did you last hear from your family? So I actually was able to message them as of this morning with updates. Um, The last update that I did receive was that 
uh, the neighbours of my particular family members right next door and neighbouring, all their buildings have been bombed to the ground. So um, it's getting very, I mean, it's always been close to home, but this is, you know, even closer and it's getting extremely, extremely um, distressing and, and worrying to just sit in the unknown and not know exactly what's going to happen and, and to what extent. Yeah, the world continues to watch as innocent Palestinian lives are lost and, like you said, sitting in that unknown. And yet Israeli forces have continued to cut off water, gas, electricity and homes continue to be besieged. Um, what else are you hearing from people on the ground in Gaza? The aggression has, is like never before. Right. So in the past, there were warnings at least given by the IDF before they decide to to bomb a building or a re- residential building, in essence, to, to the ground. This time around, there is absolutely no warning. It is literally, um, you know, a situation where everyone is unsafe. There is nowhere um, that anyone can actually flee for safety. We don't have bomb shelters or bunkers or anything as, you know, as such. So unfortunately, whereas in the past, you know, individuals would normally run or flee, even to mosques. Um, Mosques, you know, at least 10 now have been intentionally targeted. So the local um, or the national imam within Gaza has given a theological ruling or a fatwa that uh, no one should, nobody should come and pray in the mosques and that you should just stick to praying at home in congregation and you know, expect that the reward would be the same. So it's a very, very difficult situation. Nobody's sleeping at night. Um, bags are ready and packed. I've got, you know, again, I was sent a photograph by one of my family members. They are packing their bags ready to survive and to flee death, basically, um, because they, they just don't know. That's even if they get the chance, if they are lucky enough um, to get the chance to even, you know, grab their bags and belongings. One of the In one of the photos, there is a gas canister that's there. You know, can you imagine there's a gas canister because they are aware that it's not just their clothes that they need, but they need to also survive with whatever they have. Um, so it's extremely distressing and frustrating because we are literally seeing a shift between what we've known as you know, Gaza being the largest open-air prison, to a concentration camp, literally. Um, You know, there is a concerted effort and agenda to want to completely exterminate and obliterate an entire population. And um, what we're seeing is collective punishment as such, and it's just extremely, extremely concerning and distressing. Like you said, this is collective punishment, and yet a lot of... um mainstream media including in this colony still continues to call it a conflict in this environment is there anything that you want to dispel and speak truth to in terms of reporting about what's going on this by no means is a war nor a conflict it is genocide it is attack it you know the, the terminology needs to be clearly clearly made um you know very, very uh, clear, really, um, in a sense that you are talking about a fully equipped uh, military army who has everything that you could possibly think of. We're now seeing reports of the illegal white phosphorus chemical being used as well on, on innocent civilians. Completely equipped, going in and, and, and wiping out, obliter- obliterating civilians within Gaza what people don't understand is this is not a balance of powers whatsoever of power whatsoever we're talking civilians versus military personnel and uh weaponry that you know unheard of in in most parts of the world um so by no means can we even call it a, a conflict because the other side has nothing to fight with they are fleeing i've i'm literally as we are speaking i'm receiving whatsapp messages you know the building next door to mine has been targeted with an aircraft. We're all screaming and running. We don't know where to go, what to do. We've just been suffocated by smoke and stone everywhere, rubble. People are in a state of panic. They have nowhere to go. And if, let's say, they even try to go closer to the Rafah or Egypt border, Egyptian border, there's nowhere to go. They're literally trapped. So it is a very uh, complex, um, you know, uh, see, there's a context to absolutely everything that we are seeing unfold. You cannot just understand the events of the last week in vacuum. There is serious con- um, context. And part of that context is the fact that 
Israel, who is a aggressive occupying force, has, you know, um, imposed a ruthless blockade on Gaza for the last 16 years, whereby the population there is literally at the mercy of its own occupier, being told what to eat, what to drink, how much to eat and drink, where and how they can move and, and if they can move. You know, what people don't realise is Gaza in and of itself is a refugee camp. All of these people don't want to be where they are right now. They have homes that are one hour outside of Gaza that, you know, where they, they were forced to, um, to flee their homes literally for survival. Um, so there is context here. It's not just as simple as, you know, seeing uh, what, what we're seeing emerge and, and whatnot. You have to understand that these are a frustrated people who have been unable and given absolutely no permission or opportunity to literally exist indifferent to any person on the other side. We recognize this is a time of urgency, but also of profound sadness and grief. And I saw you post on your Instagram stories today that there's not even a way of even providing dignity and consolation during this time. Um, is there anything you wanted to extend on there? I, I just I just wish that people would look to the issues that we're seeing unfold, particularly to the Gazan population. We, we need to humanise them. We need to understand that these are humans. And unfortunately, it's a very difficult, um, it's very difficult to humanise a population when you have the Israeli foreign minister literally term and title human animals. You know, by, by statements such as this, the type of regard that this you know, regime has for human life, zero regard. So, you know, all we're asking people is understand the context, humanise the, um, the, the, the innocent civilians that are either suffering, you know, irreversible damage through injury and so forth, having to lose loved ones or their homes, probably not even for the first time. This may be the third time round minimum and all loss of life. So when we see the stories that, um, that, that unfold from Gaza, unfortunately, people become desensitised and they just look at the Palestinian population as a number or a statistic. We need to humanise these stories. We need to understand that they had dreams and visions and ambitions indifferent to you and I. You know, the children wanted or they, you know, they, they would yearn to play out in the streets just like any other child, ride their bikes, go and do what they want to do, simply go to a school a normal school. I mean, all the UNRWA schools right now are packed with refugees. Schools that normally um, hold 1,500 students are temporarily housing 3,000 minimum Palestinian, you know, refugees. Um, so they're at full capacity. So I just wish that, um, you know, people understand the stories that are coming out. They're, they're real, they're raw. These are people with, you know, these behind them, and with dreams and aspirations indifferent to us, and why can't they be afforded that same opportunity indifferent to you and I? It can be easy to coast through the news, especially on social media, and, yeah, lose that sense of humanity and the specificity of people's stories. So thank you for bringing that to the fore in this moment. I guess as part of your advocacy work, I know there's a fair few calls to action that APAN are calling upon. Are there tangible ways we can take action in support of APAN as well as those on the ground? I mean, right now we've seen the type of leadership in response to what's been happening and it's quite been quite disappointing and disheartening uh, where there is a complete ignoring and no acknowledgement whatsoever about what is happening on uh, the Gazan or Palestinian side, what's been happening for the last 16 years, for all that matters, to see our Prime Minister get up and make absolutely no reference to the oppression, to the genocide, to the massacres, the occupation of the Palestinian peoples within Gaza is extremely disheartening. And to see then not only that, but also tr that trickle down onto the states and have our New South Wales Premier put pressure to even uh, prevent or stop rallies or what we call even gatherings or vigils, right? I mean, why can't we be afforded? There is absolutely nothing that else that we can do. We can't actually send a shipment of goods and services to Gaza. I wish we could do that like any other place facing a, whether it's a um, natural disaster or war crisis, 
we can't even do that because of the blockade. Well, the only thing left to do, I mean, there are only three things to do right now. Pray, you know, support our, our brothers and sisters financially through donations. And third, get out and voice our concerns, right, to, to the media, to the global uh, community, to our leadership and so forth. And what that also does is, and what people don't understand, I mean, again, my conversations with family beyond what, you know, what else we can do, they tell us, keep talking about us, keep voicing our um, oppression, please, you know, do something to have your leaders and the leaders of the world change the direction and the fate of the Palestinians that have been trapped inside, you know, not just, you know, as I termed before, the largest open air prison, but the concentration camp now that they are stuck in. So to have that happen and to see this, it's extremely disheartening. We are only seeing, for the record, a shift in the media and the focus on potentially bringing in the Palestinian story because now we are seeing aggression in Gaza. Why do we have to wait for, men, you know, for, for a situation to get to that? Um, we've been saying this for 16 years. We said at the beginning of the week, we absolutely do not you know, um, condone any violence against any, any civilian or human life. However, you know, to completely disregard the innocent civilians that are being punished collectively um, is very disheartening. So I just, again, I, I wish there was some balance and responsible not only leadership but reporting on both sides um, so that at least the oppressed can feel a sense of hope that, you know, there are people out there that do care about us. Please keep talking about the, the plight of the Palestinian people. If you have any sway, you know, I tell, I've been pull, pushing out the fact that I've lost hope, I guess, in the media. I, I believe that we have a role to play as individuals um, you know exhaust all your social media platforms if you have a huge following this is the time now to be generous and to offer those platforms to amplify to help amplify Palestinian voices and the narrative um, and you know put pressure on leadership in some way or another to call out the uh, the aggression to to facilitate an immediate an immediate halt on what's happening. If not, it's going to get worse. We're hearing of a imminent ground assault, and that's just going to be another 1948, the Nakba catastrophe moment. Um, there has to be an immediate humanitarian corridor allowed to bring in essential humanitarian aid. We've not heard of this anywhere around the world. When there is a crisis, there are humanitarian organizations in the dozens waiting to go in and help we're not even seeing that because it's not allowed and israel you know has the power to stop that so i urge everyone to use whatever skill sets and platforms they have to be the voice for the voiceless for the oppressed and to stand up for justice and to call out the oppressor because they've been left to do whatever they want and it is causing massacres out there
over the last hour, we've been tracing the legacy and interwoven resistance of First Nations peoples here to Palestinian people on the ground and in its diaspora. We are coming to the close of this episode and I want to give a shout out to all of the people who were present for this episode. Amy McGuire and um, the Institute for Collaborative Race Research, um, who you just heard from was Ramia Sultan and uh, the Palestinian Advocacy Network. The last voice I'm going to leave you with as I'm conscious of time and the urgency of this conversation is Amal, who's a local Palestinian organizer and a third generation Palestinian refugee. She really distills the kind of systematic issues that this is interwoven with and we really want to thank her for being really generous for creating an accessible dialogue for us to act access. Um, We'll leave all the details in our show notes for all of these people and we hope you continue to amplify and uplift um, in a time where these voices are continuing to be erased. From Gadigal to Gaza, until we are all free, my name is Sharika Heluden. This was Race Matters. We'll leave you now with Amal. We spoke to you in July last year Mm -hmm. and it's really wild to be back here again um, talking about the latest siege on Palestinians in their homeland. So much of our last conversations um, definitely still ring true, but what for you is critical about this moment in time? I think what's critical is just the um, shocking level of international impunity that we have seen um, towards Israel. Israeli leaders don't feel scared hiding their intentions because they know they are being they they know they are going to be awarded impunity. Uh, you have Israeli leaders on on in in their news in their parliaments um, and so on and so forth, calling for a genocide of Gaza. One well their version of an MP um, uh, called for Gaza to be nuked, and they do have those nu- nuclear capabilities to do that. Uh, we're seeing just today in the morning, uh, we saw that 1.1 million Gazans were ordered to be evacuated, um, but they have absolutely nowhere to go. Um, and while we're seeing all that, what's absolutely shocking is the abs- is the one-sided narrative that has been put out by the West. And for me, what is very different about this moment than in other moments is in other moments we have seen calls for ceasefire, we have seen calls for retaliation, and most we always said back then it was one-sided. It never addressed the occupation. It never addressed the root of the problem, at least for at least a short period of time. It was trying to seek an end to the violence. Um, in this case, we've seen the US increase its arms to Israel, provide ext- expanded military support. Uh, we've seen expanded military support offered to Israel by other countries in the world. Um, no sign of a ceasefire. Yeah, it's just absolutely outrageous. And all we are seeing uh, in the news cycle is condemnation of Hamas's violence. And yes, Hamas's violence was horrible. It was just like, it's no no person should have to die in war. And that's a really, really sad reality that we are here. But what we've seen is this... Um, greater priority of Israeli lives over Palestinian lives. Palestinians and Arabs are being treated as subhuman. And to me, this is just no different to the aftermath of 9-11, where we saw Islamophobic and anti-Arab campaigns being launched and paraded, where Arabs were portrayed as these violent terrorists to justify uh, the invasion of Iraq, which led to the death of over a million people. And in foresight, we look back at that as an abhorrent action, as an illegal war, as something that, that we should look back with condemnation. Yet we're repeating the exactly same thing right now. And and I genuinely, genuinely fear that uh, what we're going to see in the next in the next couple of weeks um, is right now we're all bearing witness to a genocide. Um, at a scale that we have never seen before in this um, in this war. Alongside of that reality comes with it a slew of disinformation, a deliberate obscuring of the truth of what's happening um, in Gaza. Yep. What is happening is a collective punishment and, as you said, acts of genocide. 
how do we cut through the disinformation and speak back to that violence that is not supposed to be named? Well, I think there's two aspects of disinformation that I want to speak of. And, and the first is um, what I've been calling sympathy propaganda. People are very will very easily believe without any evidence, without any testimony, without any footage or videos, um, without any witness testimony, anything that's that would portray Arabs as violent. Because historically, and you know, we can go back to Edward Said's entire construction of the Arab of the way that the media portrayed the Arab world uh, in his text Orientalism, um, is that we have this barbaric hypersexualized other and we've seen a skew of misinformation over the past few days for example um, just yesterday I was seeing circulating around social media like wildfire post after post after post that 40 children were beheaded um, by Hamas um, even President Biden said it in, a, in, an, in an interview and just soon after he's like well, I, I said, oh, no, we have no reports of that. Why it was reported by one reporter where there was absolutely, like, no evidence that this had happened, very soon, every almost every major Western media news outlet had reported on it. And soon after, they realised that not even the IDF could confirm those reports. Um, and and, and, and this, this form of sympathy propaganda is used because people are going to look at that. They're going to believe it very easily because uh, in the West, as much as as many of of us who are anti-racist, even a lot of people within the left uh, in the West have a very internalised anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia, uh, and they'll very quickly believe these claims. And, And a lot of this ends up justifying the acts of violence against the Gazans because it's seen as a response to a security concern. It's seen as a retribution. Um, even today, Ben Shapiro shared, and when he was, when people were saying, "Well, there are, there's no evidence that kids are being brutalized in this way," Ben Shapiro proceeded to uh, share a photo. Uh, it was the most gruesome image I had ever seen in my life of a baby that was burnt alive. Um, and then people investigated that photo and it was AI generated. So we, we also live in like this, this world where, you know, with AI, we have the power to create even more misinformation. And I guess we have to, while engaging with the media, yes, there are, there have been acts of violence on the weekend. Yes. Some of it has been horrible and really, really horrible to have to witness and see. But we have to be really cautious about which information we're accepting, which information we're not accepting. Because if we eat up and we continue to share this misinformation, what we are doing is we are parading a genocide. Um, and we really need to be cautious with this sympathy propaganda. The other form of misinformation or disinformation that I see is very important is um, it doesn't come from direct misinformation, but it comes from omission. Um, over the weekend, uh, while we saw those scenes um, in Israel um, and in the occupied Pal- well, in occupied Palestine, really, is um, if you just look at it in isolation, we're all we're all humanists. We all have emotions. You would look at that and you'd be like, "This is such an abhorrent action." The Gazans are creating violence for themselves. The absence of context. Just lead will also then justify this genocide. Will also then justify this war. But anyone who wants to be intellectually honest and principled would recognize that the root cause of what we saw in the weekend was seventy-five years of violence from Israel. All the people in Gaza, all the people in Palestine, have known is violence. They live under an apartheid regime, which is violent. They live under settler colonialism, which, as we know, is violent. They've experienced ethnic cleansing, which is violent. There are children in Gaza who their whole lives, all they've known is the siege. That's, and there are 50, 50% of the Gazan population is children. And all they've known is a siege. All they've known is the inability to leave and go as they want. To have bombs paraded on their homes on a constant basis. You have the people in East Jerusalem 
who every day they're, they're fearing the violence that they will be forcibly removed from their homes. You have the people in the West Bank that face a violent mil- uh, military occupation. You have the people displaced in military in, in refugee camps, sorry, all around the world. And all they've known is this violent regime that has violently displaced them their whole life. Israel's state and the way the state is structured is violence. And if we fail to contextualize the violence that we saw on the weekend, we will never achieve peace. We'll only achieve submission um, to occupation and to war crimes. And it's very important to contextualize this because if we want the actual safety and security for Palestinians and for Israelis alike, uh, this would this can only come with the end of the occupation, with the end of the siege, with freedom of the Palestinian people, with the right to return guaranteed, with the end of settler colonialism, and with Zionism as an ideology not controlling the Israeli state um, in a way that creates ethno-nationalism, which is very violent. And I think the, the, the lack of context and dissemission has spewed so much misinformation that made Gazans look like the problem, that made Palestinians look like the problem, when in reality, the root cause of what we saw was, was the occupation itself. Mm. Yeah, I want to um, speak more to those root causes that you've started to bring up mm-hmm. and this collusion of other settler colonies as well within as being part of this agenda. Mm-hmm. On October 9, thousands of people took to the streets of Gadigal to protest what's happening in Palestine to be met by the sailors of the Opera House being lit with the colours of the Israeli flag. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to the responsibilities that settler colonies like the US and like so-called Australia have in being complicit to Palestinian dispossession? Yeah, so what we have is like this Western bloc, right? Um, and I'm going to em- emphasise that this Western bloc includes Ukraine because it's going to be a bit relevant to my discussion uh, towards the end of this. Um, and in this Western bloc, we've got some of the biggest imperialist powers and settler colonies in the world today. Uh, the U.S., as we know, violently dispossessed in in its in its foundation, uh, the indigenous people of the Turtle Islands, who now, who to this day, uh, are actively experiencing a genocide. Same applies to uh, Canada, which is also within the Turtle Islands, New Zealand, Australia, as we know. This is the country that we live in. We are seeing violence towards indigenous people in this colony on a daily basis. No response to deaths in custody. Uh, Increased police violence. Uh, The stolen generations, which, as we know, has not ended. We're still seeing indigenous children forcibly, forcibly removed from their homes. Uh, in the Northern Territory, we had uh, the hardcore intervention, which we saw over the years, and then we had Albanese's intervention light. It was still an intervention, but they just liberalised it. We have, There is a war against Indigenous people in this country, um, and any act of liberation um, harms these countries' interests. It harms imperialism. It harms the imperialist goals that the United States has in the Middle East and that Australia has in the Pacific. Um, And when we understand it like that, we understand why Australia supports Israel as much as it does. Australia is the Israel of the Pacific Um, and it is the Israel of our region. Um, so of course it's going to, um, I wasn't surprised when they announced the opera house was going to be raised in those colors. I wasn't surprised. It was something that was probably just about time. It it was, they were saying at this point, the silent part out loud about how much they are willing to support apartheid regimes, uh, settler colonial regimes around the world uh, in a week where apparently we're meant to be discussing truth and treaty and voice. Yeah, uh, what we've seen from from these Western powers have ha- has been uh, an absolute ridiculous form of solidarity to an apartheid regime, and because of this, because of the impunity that they guaranteed Israel, because of the solidarity that they showed Israel, they are now more than more so than ever complicit in the deaths and the violence towards Palestinian people. Uh, more so than ever, every member of our government, every member of parliament who has stood and who has failed to call for solidarity with the Palestinians over the past week has Palestinian blood on their hands. And in terms of Ukraine, uh, because it's a part of that, one of those countries in the Western world that did show solidarity to Israel, 
Um, this one is, I think a lot of people really struggle to grasp it because I think a lot of people have been saying, well, why can Ukraine resist and Palestine can't resist? Or Ukraine is occupied and Palestine is occupied. So they expect Ukrainian solidarity towards the Palestinian plight. Um, but it fails to consider that Ukraine within itself is... Um, Whilst the invasion by Russia is abhorrent, I, I would preface this with that before someone wants to mis- misconstrue my words. Um, Ukraine is a part of the imperialist NATO Western bloc. Uh, everything that it has done in its region, they have been, um, what's it called, parroting and parading imperialism. Uh, they're not any better than, than all these other Western powers. They rely on the support of Western powers like the United States. They love imperialism just as much as anyone else. So, of course, they're going to support Israel. Um, and what we need to understand, I think, is when we're criticizing the, well, why can Palestinian, why can Ukrainians uh, fight fight against their oppressors and Palestinians are not allowed to fight against their oppressors um, is, is this simple thing. It, it, it comes from an element of whiteness on one level. But on another level, I think it's just about understanding the geopolitical dynamics where Palestine is not a part of the Western bloc. We're not a part of Western interests. We don't meet the imperialist interests of these countries. And Ukraine position does. And I think that would also help in, in understanding the, the level of solidarity that we should be expecting from Western governments. Because uh, if we think in, in, in the other way, which is, oh, if Ukraine can get it and Palestine can get it, and we don't look at this, the imperialism, the settler colonialism, and that analysis in the backhand, we're going to be expecting something from a government that can't deliver on it. And it, it becomes a really, uh, we end up uh, directing the fight in the wrong way. I was listening back to that chat we had last year and we had spoken about this idea of yeah Palestine being described as a litmus test um, where solidarity with Palestine is not just about our individual choices but also about our collective ability reflecting on this now what does this mean to you Palestine I think now more than ever. I mean, last year we said, you know, Palestine's a litmus test for the left. And then now seeing how people in the left or in, or liberals or centrists or anyone has responded, I would say Palestine is now the litmus test to your politics and the truthfulness that you have to your politics now more than ever. Uh, a lot of people uh, in the left... And, and I say this, like, the left is a very, very broad collective of people. And I think a lot of people on the left don't even like each other that much. So I, I, I'm going to start just by prefacing that with that. They've, they've really struggled with the decolonization question this week. They've really struggled uh, with the liberation question this week. Um, they've really struggled with what an anti-apartheid, how, the psychology of the colonised um, and, you know, for people that love to, le- to read Fanon and, and love to read these big thinkers like Marx, Fanon um, and so on and so forth, uh, where Du Bois, uh, uh, Malcolm X, they're good at reading in hindsight. They're bad at showing their solidarity in the present. Mm. And this is something that's really important because when, when, when anti-apartheid movements were happening in South Africa or in Australia, uh, people that stood up for South Africans who were um, subject to the apartheid system, um, they were demonised. They were labelled. Um, they were labelled as some of them were labelled as terrorists for their support of Nelson Mandela, mm. who later ended up standing on the steps of the Opera House. Um, uh, uh, people who supported land back movements uh, for the indigenous struggle uh, and land rights movements in the late 60s were demonised and arrested and charged. Um, People that stood up only 20 years ago against the Iraq war were demonised. I, this week, seeing how certain people in the left have reacted and have paraded and justified the war in Gaza, I am of certain belief and, and, and their absence of showing uh, nuanced solidarity for the Palestinian people and understanding the events of this weekend um, and, and, and moralizing a colonized people. I, I, I am absolutely certain that a lot of these people in the 70s would have had a both sides approach to South Africa apartheid. 
would have had a both sides approach to Jim Crow laws. Would have struggled with the land rights movement and probably with native title, which is like the least, the least progress, which is like the least radical form of, of land back. Um, and in, in the Iraq War, would have even struggled to, to, to would have struggled with, with those questions as well. Um, so it becomes Palestine in this sense becomes the litmus test because we don't need your solidarity 20 years from now. We don't need solidarity from you when the world finally wakes up to what happened to the Palestinian people and we're finally liberated. We need solidarity with you right now when people are being um, demonised for their support of Palestine, when our politicians are justifying war crimes in the region. We need your solidarity now. So, so that certainly becomes the litmus test because it's a true test to someone's politics on the left um, and, whether they're, and whether they're able to provide their solidarity in the present or whether they're just the type that wait 20 years, wait for this academic test text to come out on it, uh, read this academic text and then suddenly be uh, their most radical self. We're coming to the close of our conversation and I want to really like distill these ideas of meaningful solidarity yeah. and tangible action. What for you are the everyday um, acts of resilience of grassroots peoples, be that in Palestine or its diaspora? Um, yeah, I can't speak for Palestinians in Palestine. Um, I need to recognise my privilege that I don't live under siege and I don't live under occupation. Um, so I would recommend in that sense to uplift and listen to Palestinian voices of, of the ground and heed their calls. Um, in terms of what you can do here in, in, in so-called Australia and our settler colony um, is show up. Um and this week especially show up because um, for anyone who is listening to this and has been watching the news for the past week, uh, pro-Palestinian protesters are facing probably one of the largest political uh, political attacks that we have seen in this settler colony uh, in years. Probably we haven't seen any of these size since the Iraq war. Our protests are being banned and criminalised. That's a whole nother legal fight and I recommend you follow some mainstream media to see what we have to say about that. Today at 1pm we, we're going to be in Hyde Park for a static rally and the reason why it's a static rally is because police have prevented us from marching. It is because the state is utilising Islamophobia in this country and anti-Arab sentiment yep. and essentially weaponising 30 seconds of video and a 30-second incident, an abhorrent incident, at a rally on Palestine to disproportionately punish peaceful protesters. Um, we call on all our allies to come and join us. Well, first of all, to come and join us and show that you, you stand with the Palestinian people and you won't be pressured by politicians' cause uh, to not attend these rallies. Uh, that you stand against the states, not just their silencing campaign against Palestinian people, but also their long-standing and militant support of Israel, which is why they're silencing our protests, um, because they don't want dissent. They don't want people to see that people don't support the government, that there is increasing pro-Palestinian sentiment in this country, but also as allies, and I say this especially to white allies, to come and protect Arab minorities who are going to be facing a racialization campaign from cops today in Hyde Park. From what we understand, a thousand police are being deployed today. Extraordinary powers have been granted, um, which means that they essentially have the powers that were created to deal with the Cronulla riots, which Arabs were victim to, uh, to deal with us today. When there is no evidence that we are not capable of holding a peaceful gathering and that we pose any threat to the public. So come up and stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people and as allies come up and help and protect Arab people who might fa find themselves facing demonization from police. If you see anything, film it. Uh, protect people, always come with someone. If you see an Arab, if you see an Arab um, or a person of color alone at this rally, 
invite them to come and 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 have a sense of protection with you we need your support now more than ever we have our people are dying overseas we need to stand up for our people and we need to show solidarity but we need our allies right now more than ever to protect us against state repression um and potentially state violence Race matters. 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 Race matters.